Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Boyle. I think good morning. Welcome, everyone, to Grand Rounds, uh, April 26, 2017. As you can tell from the attendance in the front row, it is um, uh, another in our important series of uh, graduating residents presentations for Grand Rounds this morning. And I think we are getting close to the end of that cycle. Oh, well, we've got a few more. Still a few? Three, three, three more. All right, so May's calendar will be coming out. May's calendar will be coming out, and you'll see see more of our, our um, PGY3s coming through. <clears throat> and next week, I believe it's Dr. Stephanie White uh, will be presenting Grey Rounds here on May 3rd. It is a big week and a big day. As you all know from the banners outside, it is Patient uh, Appreciation Week. It is also Volunteer Appreciation Week, which I guess coincides because many of our patients are volunteers and vice versa. And today is um, Administrative Professional. Professionals Day nationally, so I believe there it may be a spread up in 6L and 6M um, to uh, thank our administrative partners, and of course um, we can't do anything that we do without them, and our patients and families can't do well without our administrative professional partners, so take a chance to thank them as well um, <clears throat> in all of our celebrations. Today is uh, Anusha Vandlamudi's uh, presentation. Anusha is a native of uh, North Carolina, Tar Heel, with Bachelor's of Science and Bachelor of Arts from the University of, Carolina, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She completed her medical school training at Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University before joining us here at Chad in 2014 for residency. She has been um, highly productive in residency, um, uh, um, publishing or submitting one manuscript and having two papers um, published already. Um, actually, that wasn't a manuscript, that was a paper. You should list that as a paper on your CV. So three papers published during residency in addition to one from her medical school day presented at the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology annual meeting in 2016 and um, earned a catch grant from the Academy of Pediatrics um, uh, for um, outreach and advocacy around smoking cessation and asthma prevention. So it is of no surprise that she will be beginning her fellowship in pediatric allergy and immunology in the summer. It is a little bit of a surprise that she will go down Tobacco Road to Duke University to do that, but she's wearing the right blue colors this morning. So welcome, Anusha. shape the doctor-patient relationship, acquire some familiarity with Ayurvedic concepts, and being able to apply these concepts to medicine today. So as we start, I want you to think about this case that you may be able to um, imagine yourself uh, seeing on 6L in your clinic. You have a two-year-old coming in with asthma exacerbation. They just moved from India a couple months ago. And um, the parents tell you that they've tried all these Ayurvedic medicines and want your advice on what to do next. So think about this case, uh, put it in the back of your mind as we go through the grand rounds today, and we'll readdress it at the end of the day. 
So we're, we're going to talk about the evolution in terms of phases. This is uh, the same framework used by Dr. Lochin in his, um, in his book, Medicines of Ancient India, which is actually a rich resource that I use for my presentation today. The framework he uses divides the evolution in these four phases. And if you're thinking about covering all of history from 10,000 BC to basically now is really difficult, I would say you're a skeptic and also right. And um, having said that, we're going to cover the first few phases rather quickly and talk mostly about the latter phases. And I should mention that these frameworks are very helpful in terms of um, dividing up this very difficult task that we have, but the traditions and practices don't fall strictly within each phase. There's a lot of fluidity between them, and there are a lot of practices that were used even back in primordial phase that you can still see now. And it's interesting to note that there are a lot of other civilizations who have similar evolutions, and there's a lot of aspects that you can see mirrored from the um, Indian evolution to other civilizations. So let's start by talking about the primordial phase. The time period we're talking about now is Paleolithic and Mesolithic. So the society we have is hill-dwelling. They uh, get their sustenance from hunting, mostly. In this uh, kind of society, death and disease were thought to be due to spirits. Elwin and Roy, who are anthropologists who did a lot of studies in this, mention some examples. They uh, mention headaches, stomach pains, and even seizures as having been caused by collisions with spirits. Even things like dog bites, it's thought that if you angered a spirit, the spirit might take the medium of a dog and then bite you. So uh, consequently, the treatment revolves around taking care of the spirit. On one hand, you have appeasement of the spirit by giving them tasty meals, giving them rituals. On the other hand, by making the ghosts leave by giving them disgusting things. So um, there's also some evidence of self-mutilation with the thought that if you're possessed by the spirit and the spirit gets hurt, the spirit will leave. So examples of uh, tongue piercings were found. And we'll talk about a couple more examples now. There is some evidence of trephining, which is uh, basically drilling a hole in your skull. And it was thought that uh, it was used as treatment for a headache and as a way for the spirit to leave your body. I mean, if you think about it, I don't think that guy's complaining of a headache anymore after this. <laughs> so um, next we have an example of um, the Abhors tribe. So this tribe is a nomadic tribe in the Northeast India. There are still sects of this tribe, still nomadic, and practicing some of the same things. And um, Elwin, the anthropologist, again, mentions um, some of their practices. They mentioned this a green bow made of bamboo with some split ends of bamboo kind of stuck about it to quote, in case anyone about to enter it had come from a sick stricken place. So it's to not only physically uh, prevent the person from entering, but also to scare the spirit. So basically, these are precautions back in the day. And you know, they look a little less ominous and probably easier to order than precautions now, if you ask a lot of interns. <coughs> Some other aspects that were mentioned, rehabilitation was uh, heavily mentioned. They uh, had strong community and everyone cared for the sick. So dispo plans were not as hard back then. And former patients were known as um, authority figures, just like shamans in some other cultures. So as you can see, this period is very superstition-ridden, but you do have the beginnings of um, you know, arranged strategies to approach health and illness. You don't have the strict uh, drug therapy medicine men yet, but you're starting to situate the roles of this, at least. All right, so back to our main slide. We just talked about primordial medicine. Now we're going to talk about the sorcerer medicine. So the... Um, 
cultural and ecologic context of this, this is of the Neolithic period. You have more animal herding and more shifting cultivation as well. This um, medicine was also called magical religious medicine because the causality for diseases was becoming more pluralistic. You still have spirits as causing a lot of the diseases, but in addition to that, now you have angry deities, evil eyes, and um, Dr. Lochin postulates that a lot of this might have to do with the um, advancement of agriculture in this period. So as people are becoming more and more aware of weather conditions, they're paying more attention to celestial elements and attributing um, deities to that. And now that you have more private property, property as well, um, the concept of jealousy, envy, and thus evil eye is becoming more prominent as well. And with agriculture, you have more professional diversity. You have different jobs that people are doing, and there is um, now a role for medicine man. <coughs> so these are some examples. On the left, you have Lord Varna, who um, is god of rain. And on the right, you have uh, what's basically a personification of evil eye. So I thought it would be easy to talk about this time period in terms of these general ideas. We'll talk about prevention briefly, diagnosis, and then therapeutics. So a lot of the prevention in this time period was focused on not angering the deities. You do that by following strict moral codes. You do that by being good to other people, and you do that by being good to the community. There's also mentions of regular offerings, so there's um, times in each season that you do a little festival for the gods. You can also wear amulets in order to protect yourself from one of the more um, evil spirits. On the right is a picture of such an amulet. And what's interesting is that some of the funeral rites and death rituals also involve um, uh, shaving your head in order to prevent the now dead ancestor from recognizing you and entering your body. So this, um, this particular practice is still in place now and people use it uh, when a loved one pass, pass away in Hindu rituals. So talking about diagnostics, um, you have symptoms that are now more specific for different possessions. Ray and Elwin, again, the anthropologists, describe some of these um, divination measures. You have a priest or a medicine man holding a lamp with a lot of strings around it, and the medicine man then chants all these spells. The um, spell that's correlated to the culprit causing the illness when that's chanted, the swing, the um, lamp is supposed to swing. So that's how you know which uh, spirit possessed you. And there's also mentions of um, the priests themselves being direct agents of such culprits. So the priest goes into a frenzy-like state and then um, has a different voice and speaks to the peasants and normal people. Some of the authors describe witnessing it themselves, and obviously because it's an anthropologic study, they're not going to analyze it scientifically, but they did uh, witness people going to these frenzies and giving diagnoses. Other than lamps and strings, they do mention other um, household items, like there's a wooden seat mentioned, there's a lamp, a wicked lamp they call it, um, there's a pan that's mentioned. And there's more mentions in um, Dr. Gurdon's paper, who's um, specifically looking at the um, diagnostic portion. So the therapeutics in this time period, a lot of focus on spells and rituals. Yagna is a fire ritual, so it's a specific kind of ritual. You see a picture of that on the right, and we'll talk about it a little more. Bali is animal sacrifice, and you again do that to appease um, anger deities. There's also mentions of outsmarting the agency. So you have the patient enter a house and then leave the house by a side door. That way the spirit doesn't 
know that the um, patient had left, and hopefully we'll leave the patient alone. And um, there was some mention of homeopathic magic as well. So homeopathy being, you know, like cures like. Um, there's mention of eating walnuts to help your brain power because walnuts look like brains. So a lot of the information we have from this time period comes from Vedas. These are ancient Hindu scriptures. They are written in early Sanskrit, and they have... Uh, poems, philosophy, rituals, medical aspects, and guidance to priests. These were thought to have been um, revealed to these sages by gods after periods of intense meditation. So in these phases, um, the ailments of human body are, again, caused by divine factors. And you even have mention of specific gods and goddesses for uh, certain diseases. So on the next page, we have such examples. On the left is goddess Shitala, who is goddess of smallpox. So there's still um, some villages in India where they do festivals every, um, every year in order to prevent goddess Shitala from getting angry and um, plaguing your village. And on the right, you have Serpent God. And in order, uh, in addition to specific ailments, um, deities can, any deity can cause any disease. And this is just to demonstrate that there are a lot, lot, lot of deities, gods, goddesses. And in, um, in addition to causing the illness themselves, they are also um, preyed upon to help them get out of the illness, too. So a lot of the times, the deities are described in benign ways, and the rituals are supposed to be to appease the deity, sorry, we did something wrong, can you help us, kind of thing. So it can be a way out of illness for, um, for people who don't have many options. So among the Vedas, there are four of them. Uh, Atharva Veda is um, the Veda that has most of the medicinal aspects written. The authors are thought to be um, of these uh, Agni cult, Agni being fire, so fire worshippers. And in this book, you have uh, practitioners who named plans after themselves once they kind of um, research what they do and propagate the use itself. So not very much unlike the um, doctors who name diseases after themselves. And some of the ingredients mentioned are cow's milk, cow's um, products, water, soil, shells, rock salt. And it was interesting that uh, there was mention of different formulations of um, these materials as well. So not only you have things you take by mouth, you have um, topical ointments, inhalation, and uh, fumigation as well. So priests in this time period uh, were thought to hold magical power over gods through mantras or spells, and um, they are able to use their power to cure you of your illness as well. So this is an example of a fire ritual or yagna. I will say that I had this done myself last year. My grandmother, who lives in India, she was um, very worried that I was getting sick all the time. My skin wasn't looking good. I wasn't sleeping too much. I didn't have the heart to tell her that it was residency, so I went through the um, ritual. It was fun. Um, nothing really changed. I'm still here working. But, um, but it, I think, gave my grandmother at least um, peace of mind. Some other accounts that were mentioned in this time period by other authors, um, Anu Sainu, who's a um, family medicine doctor, um, she published this in a primary care journal, talking about the ancient physicians of India. So there's mention of demon being trapped using uh, fire and hot water surrounding it. So you induce the spirit by um, 
uh, chanting all these spells, and then you trap them. And there is a mention of a frog being tied under the bed, and the fever that the patient has then gets transferred to the frog. There's, um, interesting, a lot of mention of animal sacrifices and um, other mean things being done to them. And um, in this time period, you also have pottery making that's becoming more and more regular. And with that, you also have the potter helping with setting bones and some accounts that it actually worked pretty nicely. So still this time period, but kind of more of the later parts, um, you have more description of bones and internal organs as well. And now you have more personification and interrelationship of different symptoms. So thinking of cough, cold, fever as siblings, for example. And there's also mention of um, different bodily fluids, not very much unlike humors that you see. Um, so you have mention of derangement of phlegm, bile, and there's mention of germs causing infections and uh, harms of eating contaminated food. There's also a brief mention of hereditary diseases, although they don't describe them very well, so I don't know which ones they're talking about. So Ashwin brothers, um, these are God-specific for um, illnesses. So they're first mentioned in Vedas, but um, you see them more and more kind of in the later parts. You do have uh, their counterparts in some Greek and uh, Roman mythology, so Castor and Pollux, for example. So they're thought to be sons of Surya, who is um, the sun, uh, god of sun, and they are physicians of gods themselves. They are thought to be forever youthful, brilliant, fast, athletic, and um, they're pretty revered throughout this time period and later time periods as well. So, moving on quickly to the next time period, uh, we are going to talk about the phase of the cures now. During this phase, now you have more of a larger scale animal herding and double season farming. And with that comes more and more wealth differentials and also formation of state. And beginnings of urban atmosphere as well, which lends itself to um, uh, condoning science and philosophy. And with more urbanization and um, larger settlements, you also have different concepts and experiences being traded between settlements. And I'll talk about the Mahanjadaro in a second. So Mahanjadaro and um, Harappa, these are Indus Valley civilizations. So for those of you who didn't grow up in India, I guess, so um, you have uh, these nomadic people that are traveling kind of down the Indus River. This is 6,000 BC. They uh, make some settlements to the west of the river. And as the, um, the river's tributaries kind of channel themselves the right way and the waterfall becomes um, more reliant, they have more and more agriculture and more and more um, strong settlements with merchant activities. By, I think, 2300 BC or so, these settlements were beginning to trade with some of the, um, some of the Mesopotamian uh, civilizations as well. And let's talk about what they found with the excavations. So in early 1900s, um, Dr. Banerjee was looking for a Buddhist stupa and kind of stumbled on um, this site. And since then, it's been um, well studied. This is the site Mohanjadaro. And as you can see, the city structure is really well laid out for having been that long ago. What you're seeing there is a um, watertight pool. They also had... Um, common areas and large furnaces and very well-defined um, and developed drainage systems as well. So hygiene was um, held in high esteem. 
These are some pictures. Um, these are some artist renditions of Harappa, the other uh, Indus Valley civilization I was talking about. And at the bottom, you have trading routes that, um, that were beginning to develop as well, not only between the settlements in the Indus Valley civilization, but as I said, broader. So in these excavations, they found a lot of arts and inscriptions and a lot of evidence of medicine as well. So they found um, materials with medicinal value, uh, mention of coral stag and rhinoceros, um, mention of using counter venom for bites, and at least descriptions of things like turmeric, tosi, and neem. So turmeric, thing most of us are familiar with. Tosi and neem are other herbs that are also um, thought to have some antiseptic properties. And among the um, the remains of people they found, they also found some teeth that have been drilled, so beginnings of surgery as well. So this phase, um, it's more of a transitional phase, as is every phase, but um, you see a lot of supernatural elements still, but you have more emphasis on drugs. Even if the causality is the same, you have more mention of things of medicinal value. And now you have more attempts to uh, locate the illness um, or disease in specific parts of the body. And there's uh, a book called Kaushika Sutra, and um, it's thought to be part of the Vedas, but more an extension, so it was written a little later. And that is focused mostly on medicine and sometimes is um, known as first book of medicine. All right, so now we are at the money. We're going to talk about phase of the doctors. <coughs> so phase of the doctors, you have um, developing forms of different kinds of medicine that are growing concurrently. We are at least familiar with the last three, the naturopathy, homeopathy, and allopathic medicine as we practice it today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Ayurveda. So the social context for this phase, you have double season farming and more and more merchant activities with the trade routes that we talked about. And now that we have large urban centers and more wealth, people can afford um, to do research and they can afford treatment. You're now having beginnings of rational theory of health and disease. So the practitioner of Ayurveda is called Vaidya, which means person of profound knowledge. We'll talk about um, that role in a second. Some of the sources that um, we get most of our information about Ayurveda are Charaka Samhita, Sushruta Samhita, and Ashtanga Hridayam. Those are the three um, big encyclopedias of knowledge. You also have some epic poems, you have some um, moral tales called Jatakas, and also travel accounts by um, traveling anthropologists. All right, so the earliest mentions of Ayurveda you have in Ramayana and Mahabharata. So these are um, two great works of Indian literature. They are written in Sanskrit. They are really long poems, um, and they are thought to be uh, the Vedas in story form. All children in India grew up on both these stories, so each of them has one main story, and there are smaller stories kind of within each of them. So Ramayana is about um, a god king who, because his um, dad gave a word, kind of goes into um, exile and then fights this demon king. And then Mahabharata is about... Um, is about five brothers who lose everything because they gambled it away. And most of the story is about the war between the five brothers and the hundred cousins that they have. So a um, lot of little stories within, and there's a lot of mention of um, medicinal things within these stories. You have snake bites, a lot of amputations with all these war stories, and even infectious disease. Um, 
either as a way of cursing a whole group of people or, um, or as a war tactic even. So Dhamman III, he is um, thought to be incarnation of God Vishnu. Uh, for people who know, Vishnu has a lot of incarnations. And he is um, known as the god of Ayurveda. There's mention of him in Mahabharata that we just talked about. Um, people kind of um, try to milk the large sea, and he comes out of it with a bowl of ambrosia. So um, for immortality, and he's thought to represent health, wellness. And there's also mention of Ayurveda in Buddhism. So um, around this time when you have um, more struggle to interpret uh, man and life, Ayurveda is becoming um, more prominent as well. And the personal physician of Buddha, Jivaka, um, is known as a practitioner of Ayurveda as well. So, theory of Ayurveda, this is a little tricky. Um, so you have three vital energies called tridosha. So you have five eternal substances, which are earth, water, fire, air, and space. And when they combine to form human body, they do so um, by creating these vital energies. So that's what the tridosha is. Um, so vata, the first one, is combination of air and space. It represents movement. So moving of blood, lymph, even food through your body is represented by that. Pitta is... Um, Think of it as transformation, so the idea of converting your food into um, usable energy. And kapha um, is the physical manifestation of everything, so bones, organs, or what have you. So disharmony between any of these energies can cause disease and throw any of your seven constituents um, off. So these seven that uh, are described by Ayurveda are, as you see on the right, so you have blood, muscle, adipose tissue, bone, nerve, reproductive system, and plasma. So let's talk a little bit about Ayurvedic methods in general. It takes a more holistic approach to um, health and wellness. There's a lot of focus on physiology, mental state, and even other factors like age, season, what year it is. There's equal emphasis on cure and prevention. And there's a lot of focus on maintenance of this balanced state of health. And a lot of this um, is interrelated, so focus on harmony of body and mind and man and universe. They do emphasize combined effort of physician, patient, nurse, everyone in the care team as well. There's a lot of emphasis on history and physical. And in the earlier days, at least, um, the care team also included some of the more supernatural elements, such as priests or astrologers. So Vaidya, who's the doctor, um, does his history his physical exam, and his differential diagnosis. So as I said, very organized way to look at medicine. And a lot of methods also involve purification, and the focus is both on internal and external. So it's called panchakarma. On the left, you have the five, um, so pancha means five, so five components of this treatment. And as you can see, some of them are um, a little iffy. You have bloodletting and even enemas, but you also have um, things like nasal rinses that um, have been proven to work, and you also have vomiting and, um, and diarrhea. Yeah. So the literature that we um, look at for Ayurveda, the first concept is Zaptopadesa, which is oral and written testimony of personal experience of Ayurveda. So at least in the earlier days, people acquire their knowledge and write it down and kind of pass it along to the next generation. And later we have um, the more organized forms of the encyclopedias that I mentioned earlier, called Bratrai, meaning great triad of the compositions. 
So it's Charaka Samhita. So Charaka is a guy, and Samhita just means, uh, co you know, collection. He talks a lot about therapeutics. Sushruta Samhita, Sushruta is the guy, and he focuses on surgical procedures. He's the scary-looking guy on the right. <laughs> and um, Ashtanga Fridium is um, a collection written by um, Bhagavata, who is disciple of Charaka. So the... Um, the last one uh, was known to have written in 600 AD, so still pretty old. This is a rendition of Sushruta doing uh, cataract surgery, I believe. And um, have Sushruta again and all these um, instruments that were thought to have been used in this time period. And there was also mention of a lot of nose jobs for whatever reason, so that's also pictured. So telling you a little bit about the role of the physician, um, Vaidyas were paid really well. Uh, they can be paid by cash or um, even by barter system. And with the um, entwining of the social aspects, there's no fee for Brahmins. Um, so Brahmins are the highest caste in the Hindu religious system. And they're advised not to treat criminals and um, people who steal, hunters. And they do require um, state license prerequisite. I don't know that it's as hard to get as licenses for us, but um, there's descriptions of people called messengers of death if you don't have the license. That's what you're called. <laughs> and um, there is a lot of autonomy in this time period. Um, there are uh, laws against uh, arguing with physicians as well. So Vaidyas uh, enjoyed high social status and prestige. It was uh, seen as a very virtuous job. So um, your training, not your birth, makes a Vaidya. For people of lower caste, this was, um, this was a very nice way out. Although there are some texts prohibiting the physicians from um, doing a lot of ceremonies or common dining experience, thinking that um, they are somehow um, taboo because they use blood and bodily fluids. And not surprisingly, the only female mentioned is Rusa, who's one female. And um, part of the reason might be that medical education starts after a certain age, age of maturity, and by that time in this time period, women were already married off and they didn't have as much say. So ideal idea is described by um, Anusainu. So she, or um, the description is that they try to get more and more knowledge without any prejudice. So this continuing education was a thing. Um, you have uh, white or brownish yellow clothes. They're supposed to help individuals reach their spiritual goal so both healthy body and mind was emphasized. And there's a lot of emphasis on educating people as well about health and, uh, health and disease. And being able to communicate it with lay public was, um, was emphasized as well. So the doctor-patient relationship, the ideal one, is described as friendly and sympathetic, but practical. Probably not a lot of shared decision making happening. So training um, in this uh, time period, most of the training happened in ashramas, which are um, where priests kind of pray, do meditation, and uh, learn rituals, things like that. So training, not birth, makes of idea. And there was a stringent admission process, and training can last up to seven years. And there was also practical training called residency. There are divisions of Ayurveda. I won't go through all of them, but one of them is Kamarabhritya, or pediatrics. So there was descriptions of neonatal care, including cleaning of the vernix. So they used some ghee and some salt to get the vernix off, and they thought that that would help um, prevent hypothermia. And they used two stones um, near the ear to help um, stimulate auditory nerve, and it was thought that that helped the baby breathe. And um, let's see. They cut the umbilical cord four inches away. 
And they did um, bathing rituals with some herbs that also smelled good. They used some oil for some massaging. And um, they did give the baby some um, gold dust. And they induced emesis as well to help clear amniotic fluid. They actually gave a little bit of ghee within first few hours of life um, and started feeding uh, with mother's milk on day two or three. So there's a lot of mention of breast milk. They describe immune development uh, pretty well. And they have um, recommendations for how to increase production as well. And there's a lot of descriptions of different consistencies of breast milk and which breast milk will cause what disease. And some other disorders mentioned um, are birth injuries. So there's uh, something very similar to a caput that we see. There's description of cleft lip that was repaired. A lot of newborn rashes. Constipation, what causes them and how to treat it. Malnutrition and how one picks up on it. There's mention of pica and what herbs to use for that. There's also a lot of description on um, how to tell pain in babies and what things that babies do may um, help you discern exactly where the pain is. So if you have pain in chest, you may be biting your tongue and lips and clenching your fist. If you have pain in your abdomen, you may have some constipation and some flatulence. And if you have some pain in um, your urinary bladder, you um, have some obstruction and you'll have a frightened look. So in the infant-toddler period, um, you have food recommendations. So there's a ceremony at six months of age where you introduce foods. That's me on the left. I had my ceremony, six months. Um, there is mention of honey and goat's milk as early as six months, so that's not great. Um, you have recurrent things to prevent recurrent infections and how to help um, your memory power as well. And as you get older, it becomes kind of uh, blended into adult medicine, but you have more and more herbs mentioned for um, brain development and growth. So some ages and rituals um, that are mentioned. Um, childhood is divided into periods of just breast milk, breast milk and solids, and just solids. So those are the three mentioned there. You have the naming ritual that happens on 10th or 12th day. You have the food introduction at six months. And you have earlobe piercing at six to eight years. This is thought to prevent infections as well. And you have um, coming of age ceremony as well when you hit Menarche. So in Ayurveda, um, as you might have guessed, there's a strong emphasis on role of food. There's different food guidelines for different constituent types that we talked about. There's a lot of emphasis on fresh foods and spices that um, Indians use. There, a lot of them are thought to have some medicinal value as well. And you're supposed to eat each meal with at least six flavors. There is also emphasis on eating with awareness, so avoiding emotional eating managing cravings, and you eat with community, which also helps with a lot of this. There's uh, a nutritionist named Gita Patel. She's actually in Hanover. Um, I wasn't able to get in touch with her, but she does, um, she does take referrals and uh, treats children with obesity and lots of other um, nutritious disorders. There's a strong emphasis on role of exercise as well. Again, um, it uh, is prescribed for each body type. And believe it or not, they did yoga before Lululemon was a thing. <laughs> so um, yoga evolved with Ayurveda um, from the Vedas. And you can see um, ancient uh, drawing of different yogis doing different asanas. There is a lot of emphasis on mental health as well. So managing stress appropriately, balancing your everyday activities, Meditation is a big piece. And again, the sense of community keeps coming back. It's widely used. 65% of rural population is um, thought to be using this. And even in the US, a significant number. You have American Academy of Ayurvedic Medicine that um, uh, 
does research and um, helps dispense knowledge to practitioners here. And there are some current studies. Um, in 2011, there um, are some clinical trials comparing methotrexate to some Ayurvedic compounds um, showing similar efficacy. And turmeric is used widely in Ayurvedic um, uh, practices for anti-inflammatory and some antiseptic properties as well. And some um, similar studies showed uh, that it helped with digestive disorders and arthritis. And boswellia is a plant that um, is also known to have some anti-inflammatory and immune system effects. And they studied orthoarthritis um, patients with pain, and it did show um, improved pain compared to placebo. However, uh, word of caution, 2008, a study found that a lot of these Ayurvedic compounds that um, are sold on the internet have high levels of lead, mercury, and or arsenic. It's a picture of my sister at one of her wedding um, rituals, and my mom's um, using turmeric on her feet. So there's a um, big role of these Ayurvedic compounds in um, cultural scene as well. So um, case of asthma, there's uni uh, University of Ayurveda in Maharashtra, India. They studied 115 patients um, and used Ayurvedic uh, medicines for asthma and found that there was improvement in FEV1, cytokines, eosinophils, and IgE as well. Although I will say the methods aren't very clearly described, so I can't um, ascertain how strong the study is, but it is published. So coming back to our two-year-old with asthma, so you saw kind of the evolution, you saw the data and maybe some studies. Thinking about this two-year-old, maybe it's okay that they're doing the Ayurvedic um, medicines, but education on using albuterol also would be helpful. So some lessons from Ayurveda holistic approach. This emphasis on nutrition and exercise. This idea of mind-body, and thinking about social cultural effects on health, and vice versa. So some ideas to ponder as we end the presentation. How the physician-patient relationship might be shaped by these factors. For example, your Indian family that just moved from um, <coughs> India two months ago might not want to take part in the decision-making, might want you to make that decision for themselves. It's important to educate um, people of not just India, different cultures as well, um, regarding evidence-based medicine, while also respecting their um, cultural religious impacts of the rituals and how they grew up in um, what setting. And as always, it's important to have cultural sensitivity when you deal with um, not just immigrant families. You may have new age Hanover family who's now trying out Ayurveda, being uh, thoughtful and mindful of where they might be coming from is also important. Those are my references. And that's it. It's really interesting to, to um, hear this, all of the different perspectives and whatnot. Um, one of the things that um, is really important to me in thinking about practices that I'm not familiar with and sort of patients using them and what advice to give is the safety aspect. So if something is safe and I don't know about its effectiveness, then I generally say that's great, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Um, but um, you talked about some of the, the potential dangers of sort of medicines and things. Are there other things that we should um, be aware of in, um, in being able to sort of come together with families and come up with a, with a treatment plan? Yeah, as far as um, proven safety um, concerns or? Um, particularly around safety, but, yeah. um, but sort of the overall picture as you're sitting down with a family right. and thinking about taking what they say, what they say they want to do and sort of looking to you for advice. Right. I think um, 
Part of that might be helped by the fact that the patient-doctor relationship is different as well. So you are seen as kind of the authority on all things health-related. So if you say, I'm worried about the safety of this, um, I would imagine that most of them will say, okay, we won't do it. Um, and kind of what you're getting at, um, it's okay to do both as long as they're safe. So. Um, I also like to ask if they're doing anything else, like something like bloodletting and enemas. You don't really see that often, even in um, Ayurvedic practices in India now. But if um, if you feel like you're going down that route, I think it would be important to at least ask and make sure, because they may have a great grandma who did it, so they're still doing it. That was incredible, Anusha. You did Thanks. great work. I uh, learned an awful lot, and I was most impressed with kind of the long history of Indian medicine and how much of it, even from thousands of years ago, is still incorporated into daily life, even for you to have the fire ritual ceremony that you had. I am wondering, in modern India, you mentioned that a lot of rural people still use it. I'm wondering, either in more educated uh, people in India or even in a, a traditional allopathic hospital, is Ayurvedic medicine incorporated kind of seamlessly into, into allopathic medicine, or are Ayurvedic practitioners really a separate uh, class of practitioners, similar to a naturopathic doctor in the United States? Right, so um, that's a good question. I think they are more separate than integrated. Um, there are some universities that are funded by the government, so it is a well-respected um, field of medicine. Um, and unfortunately, some of it depends on um, your social status also. So as you said, um, rural population, they may be using more Ayurveda. Part of that might be they can't afford to go to allopathic doctor and um, afford those medicines. So there is um, there is an aspect of that kind of complicating, complicating things as well. But um, big picture, they are more separate than together. Uh, India is a very large country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> are there any regional variations that, that are of interest to you or that we should know about? Um, I don't know specifically within Ayurvedic medicine, but I do agree India is a huge country. Um, practices in state kind of south to mine are widely different from practices um, in Andhra Pradesh, for example. So culturally speaking, they are very different. So the I know the rituals and um, the, the specific gods that people pray to, all of that is different. But Ayurveda, I think they're trying to um, make it as standardized as possible. So I think Ayurveda as um, practice form in India is more homogenous, um, but kind of different aspects of Ayurveda, like the ritual part or the spells part or um, the meditation part might be different. Um, and there are hubs of Ayurveda in India, like Kerala. People go there all the time for some practices. So um, it's different in terms of how they practice it, but the ideas are supposed to be homogenous. I can see some real gems, yeah. especially as an approach to sort of more holistic mental and physical. And are there anything, anything that you're thinking specifically that you might carry with you as a Yeah. Um, so I think the the ideas of role of food, exercise, everything is important for general practitioners and um, allergists and immunologists. There is um, uh, quite a body of um, literature on asthma and allergies as it pertains to Ayurveda, which I'm planning to look into more. I don't know that it will change my practice and that I'll prescribe Ayurvedic forms, but, um, but I'm hopeful that some of these um, research studies will kind of guide us um, in terms of what agents to look for next, at least. You mean you didn't have to do research in the <laughs> Could be a good one, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Anusha. We've passed one final step. <laughs> <laughs>